It's Aaron here, and let me be honest with you for a minute. You generally shouldn't be taking fashion advice from me. For the most part, I'm not very well dressed. It's just, it's not my thing. There is one exception, however. When it's raining outside, and I'm walking the dog, or I'm picking up some groceries on my bicycle, I wear a Cleverhood Classic Rain Cape. And I look good. How do I know I look good? Because people actually stop me on the street and they say, hey, it's a cool rain cape. Where'd you get it? True story. And you know what I tell them? I say, go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. When you check out, enter coupon code one less car. You'll get 20% off in the Cleverhood store now through the end of February. And for every dollar you spend, Cleverhood donates five cents to advocacy groups working to create safer, more livable and equitable streets. Again, that's cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Coupon code one less car. This is the War on Cars. I'm Aaron Napperstack, and with me are my co-hosts, Doug Gordon and Sarah Goodyear. Hey. Hello there. We are very excited today to have a fourth person in the studio with us, Alex Perrine. Welcome to the War on Cars. Thank you so much. Alex is a contributing editor to The New Republic. He's co-host of the podcast, The Politics of Everything. He also has a fantastic newsletter, which is called The AP. And his work has appeared in The Atlantic, zillions of other venues. And he also was an editor at Gawker back in the day when it was when it was really Gawker. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you write a lot about national politics. I remember the famous hack list. You write a lot about punditry. You're also very interested in things like good governance. And you have a particular interest in illegal curb cuts yeah. in New York. <laughs> yes. So uh, maybe you could explain this for our audience. Um, well, the illegal curb cuts is like... I just moved to a neighborhood where there were just so many of them, right? Like, I had lived in other parts of Brooklyn where there were just way fewer of them because of the what sort of apartment buildings there were. And then going to a place that had more um, of these uh, townhouses with these completely fake driveways, and they were everywhere. And, and we should explain, right? Like, an <laughs> illegal curb cut is someone puts up a new house, a new apartment building, they build a garage, and then they build a driveway that wipes out a parking space and wait, that like, cuts the, yeah. through the curb. Yeah. yeah, and and sometimes it's not even... it's It'll be someone has taken what was clearly just like supposed to be the sort of front courtyard area of their townhouse and, and been like, this is where I store my car now and I'm going to paint the... I'm going to paint the curb yellow and like the curb is not like... Does not go down like a real driveway would, but they're like this will this will be my driveway now. <laughs> but I think like more important than taking away the parking space is that curb cuts like this essentially normalize the process of driving across the sidewalk, Absolutely. which yeah. is a place where there are people walking. Right. So yeah, it's a bummer about the parking space, but really what it is is that this is just like oh yeah, our sidewalks are for driving. But but also a lot of curb cut owners take their on-street parking spot in front of their curb cut and they park a second car there yeah. too. <laughs> so it's also like an amazing way to just sort of privatize a hunk of public space, like attach it to your house by just right. sort of painting yellow on your curb, right? Yeah. yeah. 
It's a great, uh, it's a tremendous life hack if you have some yellow paint and, uh, <laughs> and you own a building in New York. Drivers are the original tactical urbanists, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Doug, you should do that for a bike rack in front of your building since you've been trying to get a bike rack in front of your building for like <laughs> 10 years now. If you want now. to see government work faster than ever, like put down something related to bikes or pedestrians on the streets, paint a crosswalk, whatever it is, they will be out the next day, that night even getting it out. But if you actually want a legal crosswalk or bike corral, it'll take like 18 months. Right. Absolutely. Alex, I've been following you for a while, reading you for a while, and I've noticed that you have sort of like accelerated in the amount of time you spend with your work on these issues related to cars and cities. And mm -hmm. explain that process for me. Why are you more interested in it today than you might have been? You've always been interested in this, yeah. but it's it's come up a lot more lately for you. Yeah, uh, I would. Yeah, it, it, it's true. These it, these issues have always interested me, and since even since I was young, you know, I I've never. I grew up in Minneapolis, and I biked, and I took the bus, and and as especially as a young person, as a teenager, I tremendously enjoyed the sort of freedom of public transit and bicycling being able to take me across the city, and you know. Obviously, I moved to New York, which is the the best transit city in the country. And when I was a, an editor at Gawker, like my, my my job for a long time was been to write about national politics. But at Gawker, I spent a lot of time sort of trying to trick our audience into caring about like New York politics <laughs> and like <laughs> trying to make like Albany interesting. You know, they're so interesting though. Yeah, I mean, it was very interesting to me. But I think that definitely what has happened recently is that my interest in issues of governance and and urbanism and how we make our cities work and how our cities don't work uh, increased tremendously when I had a child just about five years ago. And it mattered, I mean, it, what, what mattered to me then was just this really basic parental thing of wanting my kid to be safe, right? And, and feeling like the complete dominance of cars over our city and the fact that they're completely unmanaged felt regularly felt threatening to his safety right and you know we're still a we're still a car free house and you know that means we we take the bus and we walk and and I now I bike in places and you know like my interest in governance went from a more abstract thing to a much more concrete thing I think in the last few years and uh, and then the other nice thing is that in this era of the newsletter uh, though I have plenty of critiques of the sort of newsletter economy, I can dig in on this stuff more and and hopefully find out that there's an audience for it. I just would like to say that that I think it's pretty interesting that for this generation, for your generation, um, that that it's becoming apparent that radicalizes so many people. That like it used <laughs> to be that like you become a parent, you become more conservative, but instead right. it's like yeah, that is you know. I mean, I, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Alex, we said that we were going to talk about governance, and uh, you have a piece in the Atlantic that just came out about three. Which is New York's system for reporting problems that you see, sort of non-emergency stuff. It's supposed to be this very useful tool for New Yorkers, but you wrote about it, and the title of the article is "What Happens When the Police Don't Care," or basically how three one one became a joke. Can you tell us a little bit about how this piece came to be and how it relates to to what we've been talking about about governance and your radicalization? 
how it came to be is there's this one Nissan that parks in front of the hydrant in front of my building all the time, and it has no license plates, and the registration's been ripped off. Like you can't see it how, uh, how if it's really it's clearly not legally registered, and I I left multiple three one one complaints about it that were closed out sometimes within minutes, sometimes within hours without any action being taken. That's part of how it came to be. And an editor at the Atlantic also asked me to write about this. But three one one is a really interesting story of governance. Three one one began conceptually as a non-emergency police number. In the 90s, there were all these stories about how 911 was overloaded, completely overwhelmed with calls. 911 wait times were out of control. It became a campaign issue. Bill Clinton, in sort of the consummate 1996 height of like sort of non-politics politics, you know, was like, here's here's my big idea, a non-emergency police number. He called it a community policing number. And that's how it was introduced in a few cities before it came to New York. But the big change in New York was Michael Bloomberg when he was his first term as mayor. And his idea was not even necessarily um, a non-emergency police number. His idea, and, and I think like it's actually a very good idea. His idea was this is how a person reaches the city government and gets them to come out and take care of something. This is how the government becomes aware of problems and in the city, and this is how people reach their government to come fix them. And that has the potential to be a pretty revolutionary idea, right? I compared it to these sort of progressive good government reforms of an earlier era, which had a lot of unintended consequences, but that's sort of an entirely different episode. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it was, I, I feel like I, I remember when Bloomberg introduced 311 and it really was a big it was a big idea that it was like it was very difficult to understand who to call where yeah. in government how to get them to respond and they built and not just a phone number but like an entire building full of people mm-hmm. and an entire like database and system where these calls would get routed to the right people and it really did feel like for a moment it made government more responsive yeah but, absolutely right. and also one of the points you make in the Atlantic piece is that the idea is that it's going to eliminate corruption, right? You don't need to know who your city exactly. council person is or have a relationship with that person. Right. It's not like I'm going to prioritize this pothole on the street of someone I know versus some other. I'm just going to fill the pothole. And yep. so like the idea is everybody gets the same level of service from government, whether they know a guy whether or they whether know they a guy don't. Or not. Yes. Right. So then what I find in, in the piece, and I don't think this will be a surprise to listeners of this particular podcast, but, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's a breakdown that happens when basically 311's job is to route these issues to the appropriate agencies. And the breakdown happens when one of the agencies just decides it doesn't care. And in this, in this case, in New York, it's the NYPD. And the things that they don't care about are all of these ways of managing the streets that they are responsible for but don't do. And the city council, the New York City Council, did an investigation this year that found them ignoring and closing out complaints about illegal parking. And Streets Blog followed that up with uh, an investigation finding basically the same thing. And, you know, there was sort sort of incredible stat that a few years ago, no parking complaint was closed out in less than 15 minutes. And now, like, most of them are. So I think in this case, 311 is fulfilling its mission of radical transparency, and the transparency is revealing that <laughs> the NYPD doesn't 
care about illegal parking. And as a matter of fact, the NYPD is often the uh, often the <laughs> often the illegal parkers, right? Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's but I mean, I will say that for it, like at least you can actually see that yeah. just how mm-hmm. flagrant the disregard for the rule of law by the New York City Police Department is. I mean, it's it's kind of astonishing that it's just right out there in the open. There's more than one car that regularly parks on my block that has no license plates. And, and uh, I got, I've started getting when there's like one of them, every few days I'll just fire off another 311 ticket. <laughs> and I've started getting like, the police have closed this with uh, additional information below and then no information below. That's my new one that I've been getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right. <laughs> but And there's reports though, to people who file a lot of these 311s are also getting harassed by yes. mysterious callers, right? <clears throat> yeah, that was uh, that was one of the things that the reporting in Streets Blog found, which was disturbing, right? Like, there are people who, you know, fire off way more 311 tickets than I do. And a couple of them, you know, started getting weird calls in the middle of the night from unknown numbers. And, I mean, it's more likely than not these were city employees and particularly NYPD people. And I confirmed with the Department of Investigation that they're looking into it, right? But, I mean, we sort of know how police discipline goes in this city, generally. And you know, my wife was like, I was complaining about some other car basically parked dangerously on our block. And my wife was like, should I fi- file a ticket too? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. And uh, that's a really disturbing thing to think too, right? Like, I can't alert the city to a problem because there might be retaliation. That's, that's. That's not a sign of anything going well. (laughs) Alex, your piece is really interesting because what we're talking about is government corruption and the ways in which government does or doesn't work. And it's interesting how the most visible manifestation of how government doesn't work, at least, you know, for cranks like us, (laughs) is through the streets. And uh, it is interesting that parking became the thing in the midst of, I think, a wider police enforcement slowdown during the pandemic that became the, a very visible manifestation of that. It's, it's also borne out in the way they're not enforcing dangerous driving violations. Like, yeah. I mean, I think in, in this city at least, I think it's clear that a message has gone out that all is permitted on the streets, right? Like driving aggressive, incredibly aggressive driving has, in from my just walking around witnessing it, you know, and we don't have statistics because no one's enforcing anything. But, you know, just you can just see that aggressive driving is up and we all the the statistics we have are that accidents and deaths are up. But it's clear that to use the you know, the philosophy of the police by the standards of broken windows here, right? If no one is punished for parking wherever you like, People will get will come to understand that anything is permitted behind the wheel, right? You can get away with anything behind the wheel at this point. And I, I think drivers got the message. And it's really unclear that there's any appetite on the part of the city or the police to do anything to just rein that back in. The other thing that this 311 problem illustrates to me is that you can have these technocratic solutions. And, and they can be good, functional, technocratic solutions. But when they enter the real world, they won't function as intended if the institutions that are responsible are just the same old, same old. Yeah. So, Alex, you were saying basically that drivers have gotten the message that anything goes on the streets. 
And I think that that is manifesting itself in other ways mm -hmm. to make another awkward segue here, perhaps <laughs> that we're seeing driverless car companies or, or companies that are working on driverless technology, such as Tesla, testing their products on public streets. And you, you had a piece in your, in your newsletter about what Elon Musk is doing. I think we've all seen these videos of, of people testing full self-driving on public streets. And there's one from San Jose that made the rounds mm -hmm. recently. Okay. And then the car is trying to go down the railroad tracks again. I mean, this shouldn't, this shouldn't, like... I've never seen it come that close to a pedestrian. Yeah, a pedestrian... eight. Like, a pedestrian and the railroad tracks now. This is... I'm not going to comment. Just You guys can just see for yourselves. So in the video, we see, from the windshield perspective, the car tries to go down some railroad tracks. It almost hits some pedestrians in a crosswalk. It mistakes a red Wells Fargo sign for a stop sign mm -hmm. and stops. It blows through a different stop sign, actually. Then it just drives on the streetcar tracks for a while, just tries yeah. to go straight down them. And so, Alex, in your piece, you you had this question that you asked, like, why would this be allowed and what is Elon Musk doing? And in fact, you argue he knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And th the, those, are the, those are the questions, right? Uh, on the one hand, why is this allowed? Who, why, why are these things out on the streets when they're clearly not ready? With Tesla in particular, they're marketing something as, quote unquote, full self-driving in addition to autopilot. They're two separate things. But this thing that they're marketing as full self-driving is not, I mean, it's just not. And it's not, they're, they're uh, autonomous driving engineers have an entire classification system for self-driving. And, and this is a level two out of level five, um, according by their own sort of standards. Other car companies have features very, very similar to Tesla's that are limited to basically highway conditions. You have to be going above a certain speed, below a certain speed, these things just shut off. But Tesla is now letting particular Tesla owners beta test uh, self-driving within city limits. As And you can, I mean, we can see the results in videos like that one. And in videos like uh, Michael Balaban, former colleague of mine now at CNN, he reviewed one of these things on the streets of Brooklyn. And it was a nightmare. I mean, watching the video gave, you know, gave practically gave me an anxiety attack. He's like going around streets I know very well, and his car is trying to drive him into traffic, and he has to keep grabbing a hold of the wheel. And he's like, every few blocks, every few blocks he has to intervene, which does not sound like full self-driving to me. Whoa, whoa. That was a really sharp turn the car just tried to make. Oh, we've got a situation in front of us. Whoa. Okay. What we just had in front of us was a UPS truck coming onto our lane. We had a guy in front of us with a cargo bike. To avoid hitting the guy on the bike, the car seemed to want to put us straight into a giant UPS truck. I would prefer not to hit a UPS truck today, so I took over. It does seem to need an interruption every couple of blocks or so. Sometimes if the car is hesitating a little bit, I have to intervene. You also have to be ready to take over at any time. Now this is challenging. Oh, oh no, we're going on the wrong side of the road. So then when the Times started reporting about really odd decisions Tesla had made, like the feds had recommended infrared cameras to monitor drivers to make sure they were paying attention to the road, and Tesla was like, nah, I don't think so, even though their competitors have done have added things like that. Tesla engineers were wondering why Elon kept overhyping the abilities of his cars, why he was rushing them to market before they were ready. Like actual, you know, in-house engineers were wondering what he was doing. And then they had the story about how you can play video games on the touchscreen. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I don't own a car. I've never owned a car. I do, I can drive, 
But in the last few years, whenever I rent a car, I'm just astounded by how much more distracting shit there is everywhere. Like, most new cars have so much things taking your eye off the road. It's nuts, in addition to the sight lines in general being worse. I was thinking about the video game thing, because initially... Tesla was assuring everyone it only works when the driver is parked. Yeah. And I remember a lot of advocates like myself and others were like, you've got to be kidding because we know where this is headed. Yeah. It's right now. It's it, it only works while it's parked, but you can be sure someone will figure out a way or the company itself will just l- allow you to use it while the car is in motion. And sure enough, sure enough, they did. That's they, what they're doing. They just did it. They just did it through a software update, right? It's not like they, they don't they don't tell anyone, right? They just threw us through a software update one and day, and they didn't ask for permission from the government to do it. Of course not. Right. Yeah. And and so now, while in a moving Tesla, a driver can be you know playing a, an actual game on his touchscreen. But 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 like, Elon Musk is not stupid, right? And and this is where your newsletter goes that I think is really terrifying and and disturbing, which is you sort of make the argument that this is all by design, right? And it it has an end in mind. Yeah. I think that to some extent, what Musk wants is to just sort of force his ideal future into being, right? And his ideal future is um, robot chauffeurs for everyone. He wants to force that future into, into being, and he is willing to ignore rules to do so, unlike other car manufacturers who have decades of experience sort of working with safety regulations in Europe and regulators in the U.S. and and actually have an interest in avoiding liability for, you know, doing unsafe things. I, I think he's much more interested in the move fast and break things model, which frequently is called innovation in a technological sense, but is actually sort of innovation in a regulatory sense in which you just go in, do whatever you like, and then wait for the regulations and the agencies to accommodate what you're doing. As I say in the piece, I think Musk probably is actually familiar with the history of the automobile in the city. And that's when I bring in Peter Norton, the historian, who I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar we, with. We had an episode with him early on. If you haven't read Fighting Traffic, you, you should. And you draw on it heavily in this piece. Yeah, yeah. And the particular history here is, right, how liability for auto accidents shifted from drivers to pedestrians basically and in in the in the public eye and and legally the invention of jaywalking which i think a lot of you know a lot of americans are sort of take it for granted that this is how the streets are the car is dominant over the streets um jaywalking is a crime but in fact right that that those conditions had to be created and uh, auto manufacturers and auto enthusiasts, with help from the media and help from the government, sort of created those conditions, as Norton writes about very, very well. But what happened, you know, there was mass carnage in the streets. There was a political threat to the dominance of the automobile as a result of outrage about the mass carnage in the streets. And the cars decided, like, well, well what we will do is, like, we will keep people off the streets. We will get people off the streets. I'd, I'd like to point out, you just said the cars decided. Yeah, the cars <laughs> decided. <laughs> they did. Well, well, they did. They called themselves Motordom. Motor yeah. Motordom yeah. decided. Motordom yeah, decided. Yeah. Yeah. That was literally their own name for their own. Was that their own name or was that something Peter? That was their own name, No, right? that was their own name. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. They, but thought, yes, they, they thought that was a nice non-evil name. But, but, but now, Motor. today, like we are kind of seeing like the cars are becoming more and more like sentient beings, right? And yeah. that's kind of the future that Elon Musk is setting us up for here. But yeah. So the, one of the things that makes me crazy about all this is that like, 
what you just pointed out there, like the cars actually are becoming sentient beings. Like, like what Elon is one of the reasons why he wants to do this is because the self-driving car technology, it's, it's artificial intelligence and you kind of have to train it. You know, it learns like the more people who yeah. are out driving Teslas out in the real world, the, in theory, at least the better the AI gets at knowing where all the stop signs are and, oh, that's a bicyclist, that's a pedestrian. And look, sure, you might run over a few people <laughs> while you're doing that. <laughs> but you but have to. <laughs> right. You have yeah, to. Exactly. Exactly. You have to make exactly. a bunch of mistakes to teach the AI. Not to do that. Not to do that. Yeah. So the whole premise is like, we have to like, we have to allow some stuff. We have to allow this thing to. But where Alex goes with this is is even scarier because what Musk is setting up here is a, is a world in which the street is going to have to change, right? Mm-hmm. Because because the, the the cars are never they're not going to no matter well how hard they think they're never going to be able to do what people do in a complicated urban street configuration with all the various yeah, random things right. that happen so yeah and then right and i think like the the more honest the more honest ai people are are now much more willing to admit that the sort of perfect self-driving tech is decades away and you know for years they've been telling us it's around the corner it's around the corner they're much more willing to admit now that like okay look we have we have stuff that will work really really well on a well-maintained grade separated freeway it'll work great there but like the unpredictable improvisational city street like it's going to be a long time before AI can figure out how to navigate this safely. The, the, the more honest ones are sort of finally saying that. But um, I think if if you wanted to force that future to happen right away, well, you might come in, cause a bunch of mayhem, and then do so not not worrying that the government will crack down on you because you have no experience of the government cracking down on you. You've always gotten your way. You might do that with the understanding that, well, maybe what will happen is they will just reorient the streets to work with my vehicles than the other way around. Right. I think then, in a way, really, uh, they're going to have an easier time of remaking streets for oh, their yeah. favor than they did back in the 19-teens and the 20s. I think, and, you know, the I linked to a story from a few years ago, the, which was like, uh, in the, a time story from 2019, I think, in which, you know, self-driving car people were sort of blithely saying to themselves, well, to make this stuff safer, you know, maybe we'll have gates at crosswalks. Maybe we'll have to move some crosswalks. And it was all just very, like, very casual. Like, they hadn't actually thought this part through, but they were asked to come up with solutions. What they went to was, like, we will will gate off people from the streets. (laughs) There's even a part in that video from San Jose where I think the guy behind the wheel who grabs the wheel as he's about to run into, you know, three women crossing the crosswalk, he says, oh, these pedestrians are making it so annoying or something like that. And you're like, okay, that's it. That's That's, the attitude. Get rid of the pedestrians and it's not annoying anymore. Right, right. Right, or or like create a, a streetscape that's much more like a highway. The technology that's going into these cars also gives us the potential that Every car could be speed governed yeah. as it enters a certain, like you could create a geo fence, mm-hmm. not even like a fence on the street, but a fence <laughs> in the computer on the mm-hmm. map. It says when the car enters this street, it can never exceed 20 miles per hour. Like that technology is all packed into a Tesla. They could mm-hmm. do that. They could set that up and upload a software update. And all of a sudden we have speed governor technology <laughs> that people have been trying to get for a hundred years, but motordom has killed. That's all there. So there's a certain way in which this technology could actually be potentially good for cities. Yeah. Um, it would probably need to be in a different type of vehicle, you know, not in a giant car, but in something smaller, lighter, cleaner. And it's there. It just needs, I think it needs cities to be able to take over 
control of regulation of vehicles from the states and the feds and Elon Musk. Look, Aaron, this is a great idea. What I want you to do is I want you to call 311. <laughs> yes, please call 311. <laughs> oh, your, your case has been closed. And right, and I think I think like that's that's really key, right? Because what the future looks like is going to be come down to a political battle and it's going to come down to the level at which people are allowed to sort of democratically decide these things. And the way people like Musk would prefer to do it is a sort of end around around that to skip to the part where this is the status quo. You have to deal with this everywhere now. Um, but it it is like it's going to be like be a political fight, I think, for the next for the next few years as to as to what kinds of vehicles rule our streets, because I do think people don't understand that these are political issues and it's not just like this is just how things are right in even in the in the to bring it back to the prior topic, right? Like I saw an illegal, illegal 53 foot tractor trailer parked in a bike lane in a no standing zone. Right. And it's just sitting there. It's probably been there all day, but like most people walking around, that's just the background noise to them. Like they don't know that's illegal. They don't know they can ask someone to do something about that. They don't know that they could have it not be there. You know, that's just, it's the idea that that, is the result of a series of political decisions made by our leaders. I think it also hits on an issue where increasingly it seems like the car is the major nexus for public corruption in New York City. Uh, like, New York, yeah. Like the car is the like the fundamental unit. The car and parking is, yeah. the, is sort of like the place where public corruption is happening most egregiously and most openly. visibly most openly and, and right. it, it creates a, and all the problems that we have with trying to manage all of these cars in a dense urban environment it's inherently dysfunctional it's virtually impossible like there's no there's no we haven't even talked about whether or not the police are actually an appropriate body to be doing yeah uh traffic management in a yeah. city it's not really what they well, I think they should be doing. No, they but, absolutely no. are not. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, cars. We all know they're just a they're a geometry problem in a city like New York. They're literally a geometry problem. You just can't fit as many of them in the city as people want to bring in. But because like police and city employees and and state employees and you know agencies treat the ability to put their personal cars wherever they like is like one of the perks of the job. Like they, it becomes unman, it, further unmanageable, but it also becomes this very obvious visual reminder that like, oh, you know, the city's not being, you know, governed on my behalf, right? <laughs> like it's, it's to bring it back to this idea of the progressive era government reforms, like it's back to being a patronage thing, right? Where it's like, this is who the city is for. It's, on the one hand in Manhattan, it's for, the very very wealthy people and the people and the and the banks who have offices for and then in the in the boroughs it's like for cops and city employees and their buddies okay so we have this huge problem of corruption of a lack of willingness to regulate big companies is there anything that can be done or <laughs> or is it i mean are, do cars just have like you know to Aaron's point like they are the nexus of corruption and all of these issues that we're talking about but are they so deeply entrenched that we're just like we got a deal? Like, or what? What? What can? What can be done? I think to to bring it back to something else, Aaron said, like we got to politicize it, right? We got to politicize it. We got to make it an open political question because right now, um, this is happening because it's treated as a status quo that is sort of beyond political questions. So the, the dominance of cars over our cities, but you know, outside of some narrow issues of what powers the mayor has, like there's not really a reason we couldn't have 
we couldn't be doing what Paris is doing. And the way that you get that is by changing it from a sort of settled issue, this is how the city is run, to an open political one. And then, I mean, obviously that sounds very easy to say on a podcast. It <laughs> takes a lot of organizing yes. and it takes a lot of work, but that's a way to turn it around, to actually, you know, take what the powers that be want to treat as settled and to reopen the question. That is it for this episode of The War on Cars. Alex Preen, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. We're going to put a link to Alex's newsletter, the AP, as well as his writing in The New Republic and The Atlantic and his podcast, The Politics of Everything, in the show notes. Remember, if you want to support The War on Cars, go to thewaroncars.org, click support us, join today starting at just $2 per month. You'll get access to exclusive bonus content and other awesome rewards. Speaking of which, we have a new Patreon reward, the official War on Cars bicycle water bottle. Yeah, and it's awesome. It's got this, it's got our colors. It's got a beautiful yellow cap. I love this This thing. is the first time we've actually made like bicycling specific War on Cars gear, which you feel like would have been something we would have done originally, but I, know, I guess... Right? And then we get slowly. we got the like the good plastic, right? It's not yes, the, like, it's the, the, the crappy it's, poison plastic. Well, these are these are really nice specialized water bottles. They're great for on and off the bike, whether you're, you know, I don't know, riding a Peloton or riding to work. Who knows? As always, we'd like to thank our top Patreon sponsors, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Vaccaro and White in New York City, Drew Raines, Virginia Baker, and James Doyle. This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. It was edited by Ali Lemer. Our music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. I am Aaron Napperstack. I'm Sarah Goodyear. I'm Doug Gordon. And this is The War on Cars. Are people crossing? So I would, I would personally wait. I'm gonna have to pause it. It was just going and going. These people are just making it annoying. Oh, and then for the first time, it didn't take us down the railroad tracks, nice. and, but it did take us into the bus only lane.